And now, coming at you from the Five Star Physique Studio in Knoxville, Tennessee, this is The Drop Set with your host, Darren Starr. All right, welcome to episode, I believe this is 53 of The Drop Set. We're going to get right into it today. Now, it is commonly known that the supplement industry is not one of the most tightly regulated industries in existence, and there have been numerous incidents and scandals over the years that highlight this. Now, one company in particular is looking to bring a little accountability to the table for the benefit of all of us. That company is Labdoor, and its founder and CEO, Neil Thanadar, is with me now to tell us about it. So, Neil, it is great to have you here, and I really appreciate your willingness to be on. Yeah, thanks for interviewing me. Absolutely. So why why exactly? I think I have an idea, but for all of our listeners out there, tell us why a company like, like Labdoor even exists. Well, the biggest thing I always think about is like imagine walking to a Walgreens or CVS and any aisle, like the supplement aisle might have 100 fish oil options, 100 vitamin D options, 100 vitamin B options. And one, if you, you could probably sit there all day trying to compare nutrition labels and facts on there, look at ingredient lists, uh, and still wouldn't be able to find the best product. And plus, there's on top of that, there's so many things that are in these products, like heavy metals or inaccurate labels that are just not on the label itself. Uh, and so really, there's no way for a consumer to know what they're buying, which is such a dangerous thing for a, a category like supplements, where you're this is actually supposed to affect your health on a daily basis. Uh, and so we really said there had to be an independent public source of data about these products so consumers would know what the best products were to buy. That makes a lot of sense. So if you're shopping for something like a potassium supplement, for example, you look at the label and it's like, oh, there's potassium in this. Great. Who would have known? But if you're shopping for something like a pre-workout, you just look at that and there's a million different ingredients and you're like, well, I hope it's what it says it is and I hope all this stuff is good for me. But you, you can't really expect yourself to, you know, as a consumer to be educated on every single one of those. So that's kind of where you come in. Exactly. And it's really uh, it, pre-workouts and, and multivitamins. Uh, are really classic examples of that, but protein powders have problems with people spiking products with uh, free amino acids. And so you might think you're getting 25 grams a scoop and you're getting five to 10 grams a scoop. Oh, wow. Okay. And so are they, are they spiking those with like branch chains to, um, I mean, what would be the purpose of something like that? Well, so no. So the, the worst thing is it's not even BCAAs. They're spiking with something like like a histamine or something, some, whatever the cheapest amino acid they can find, uh, because the standard FDA test, uh, when they test for protein, they just check for nitrogen levels. Um, and any amino acid will have nitrogen in it. And so instead of using the high quality whey protein isolate, you can use some cheap amino acid filler. The, the FDA test is the same, uh, but what, when there's a more complex protein test, like the ones we do at Labdoor, we actually check every individual amino acid and we can see if those amino acids are in a balanced whey protein profile or if it's in a spiked single amino acid profile, which obviously would be much less effective. Yeah, so it's a, it's a cost-cutting measure and it's something where it will still pass FDA tests, but it's not nearly going to be as effective for the consumer. Exactly. Understood. Now, you personally, what is your background and what uh, went off in your head that made you think that a venture like this could be successful? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, have a molecular biology degree from the University of Michigan. My, I had always wanted to be in kind of new product development in kind of inventing new medicines. And so that's really why I went to school. Uh, and 
what ended up happening was I, uh, through kind of a, a, my dad had run testing labs his whole life. So I had really watched him as a PhD chemist do testing. Uh, and uh, what I always wanted to do the next big thing. So, so product testing is kind of like the old industry. It's where you figure out whether the existing products are good or bad. Uh, and then there's like inventing new products. Uh, and so I always was like excited about, hey, I'm going to do the next new thing. I'm going to invent new products. Uh, and then actually while I was in, uh, in college, my, it, it was like the 2008 recession, and my dad like lost all of his businesses. Uh, he lost control. The bank took everything over. Uh, and so we, like, our family went to zero. We like lost our house. We lost everything. Oh, wow. uh, and, and so when I was thinking about like what I should do after college, we just like, we did the only thing we knew how to do. Like my, it was just my dad and I, we got into a lab and we just like started a new business. Um, and so that's actually how I kind of unintentionally got into the product testing business. Fascinating. Fascinating. I like that. So it's, it's kind of like you, you want to, uh, I, I was thinking as you were telling this story, I was kind of wondering where it was going. And I was thinking like, you want to be inventing new products, but at the same time, there's value in assuring that our current products are what they say they are. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that was the more and more I looked at it, I actually found that there are tons of new products being released every year. There's like 30,000 new food products released in the U S each year. Uh, and so there's plenty of innovation going on. The problem is that once you get those 30,000 products in a store, you have no idea what's the best one. Uh, and so really kind of by accident, being kind of going in, sitting in the lab saying, our specialty in that testing lab was figuring out what products were good and bad. So companies would come to us and if their product was getting recalled, they would say, why is my product getting recalled? What's wrong with it? How can I fix it? Uh, and so we were constantly fixing bad products uh, and it really, I got the idea that, hey, instead of fixing bad products, could we go to the store ahead of time and check to make sure that the products are good before we sell them? I like that. I like that. So I, uh, I did some digging through your website. And so I've, I've read through the, the, um, the documentation that you have posted there. And I'd encourage everybody else to do that. It's just labdoor.com. Very easy to find. Um, one of the things that you're very clear about on there, and the, I think the reasoning for this is obvious, you don't accept samples from supplement companies, but you just go and buy products off the shelf or online so that you know that you're getting the exact same thing the consumer is getting. Yes, Absolutely. And I also noticed there's no sponsors listed. There's no ads on your website. So immediately my head goes into, just because these are the kind of things that fascinate me on a personal level, what keeps you guys running? What keeps your doors open? Yeah, so long-term, what keeps our business running is uh, affiliate links to buy products. And so at the end of every product review, there are links to buy the product on Amazon or GNC or some other sites. Uh, and we get a commission from the retailer every time you buy a product using one of those links. It doesn't increase the price for you. It just, uh, they give us a small commission. And it turns out, you know, we sell like millions and millions of dollars worth of products per year through our site because consumers, I mean, that's where you go. When you're trying to decide what's the best fish oil, what's the best multivitamin, you're trying to make a quick decision. You don't really know what to do. And we've been working on this for years, right? We've, this is what we do. And so it becomes very easy, the same kind of way you might go to Yelp and just go to whatever is the number one restaurant in your city. Uh, people <laughs> go to Labdoor and pick the number one fish oil and move on. Right. So it's, it's incentive for the, um, the manufacturers then, if they know they're being tested, to make sure that they're putting out the product that they say they are. And 
it seems like there's also incentive for you then to increase the breadth of products that you're testing. So then uh, consumers can figure out, okay, well, this is the product that I like. How does it rate? Okay, well, it's not the top, but it's it's good. It passes all the quality checks, so I can continue using this. I'll go ahead and purchase it through this affiliate link. Thank you for the testing, et cetera. Exactly, because I think one of the hardest parts, and I think people like Consumer Reports have had this challenge for a long time, is it's really hard to get people to pay for subscriptions on the internet, right? Like, yes. I don't know how many subscriptions you have on the internet, but it's hard. It just feels like that information should be free and that someone should be paying for this. Uh, and, and like, it has to be automatic. That's something that we always kind of figured out. If there's any friction in that process, if we didn't show you the rankings until you had to pay us, you probably wouldn't check the rankings. You just go buy whatever products on Amazon. Uh, and so yeah, we I think, well, my sure BCAA that, product hasn't killed me yet. So obviously I'm fine. I'll just keep using it. Yeah. And so we really wanted to say, look, if, if we do provide value for you, if, if this works so well that you go and you buy something based on our rankings, then we'll get paid, but don't worry about it. Uh, it's just part of the system. Nice. Now, I, uh, I have never been in an FDA-regulated lab like you guys have there. Um, so I have this vision in my head of what this testing process looks like, and I'm imagining guys in white coats with test tubes and beakers and Erlenmeyer flasks and you know uh, all kinds of solutions flying everywhere. What does the actual testing process look like? Because most of us that are listening to this have no idea what goes, in in, uh, what goes on inside a lab. So what what does the testing process actually look like? I mean, what kind of equipment are you using, that kind of stuff? Sure. So what we do for, we'll pick a category of products. We've been working on nootropics right now. So we just recently tested Bacopa. We're testing theanine and some other products right now. Uh, and so really what we do first, we'll, we'll go to a store and we'll buy all the products uh, straight out of us off the shelves. And we'll take samples into the lab where we'll basically isolate the ingredients. So we'll try to separate the active ingredients and then try to analyze in a chromatography machine. So it looks like a big kind of like four foot stack of, uh, of boxes. Uh, and really we're just running the active ingredient sample through to see exactly how much, like what the peak of theanine is in a sample. Uh, and we can compare it to a pure theanine standard that we have in the lab. And so because of that, we can figure out exactly, like if someone says, this product has 100 milligrams of theanine, uh, our, like the computer and the readout will say it's you know, 95.6. Uh, so uh, so we'll you have a down. benchmark or a reference to test against. Exactly. And so that's the first thing we do. We'll check the active ingredients to make sure that the labels are accurate. Uh, and then the second thing we'll do is we'll take the sample again, and we'll do a full, essentially, mineral analysis. So we want to look at every individual element that is in the product to figure out if there are any unsafe spikes in any individual element. Uh, the big elements we're looking for are these days are lead, arsenic, cadmium, and mercury. The heavy uh, metals. So we also check the heavy metals we're trying to check to make sure, and we do that on every single product on the site to make sure that those ingredients are at safe levels. Excellent. Now, um, and then you also test for, uh, so you're testing for label accuracy. There are five things listed on your site, label accuracy, Product purity. Now, are there acceptable thresholds that you're looking for there? Like if something isn't 100% pure, clearly that's, that's probably difficult to achieve in real-world products. So uh, is, it, uh, is there a, a level that's acceptable, and then beyond that you start to flag it? Yeah, so in every one of these systems, uh, there's no like pass-fail anywhere. Everything is a gradient. 
So the same thing with label accuracy. So obviously like being a perfect uh, 0% variance is the best. Uh, but then what we do is we start penalizing differently. So like 10% over the limit is not as bad as 10% below the limit. You see what I'm saying? Like yeah. if you got a little bit more protein, you'd be happy. But if you had a little bit less protein, you'd be unhappy. Uh, and sure. so we actually penalize those differently. Like it's twice as bad to be under as it is to be over. And it scales. So like, you know, 10% below versus 20% above. Uh, and it scales from there. Uh, and the same thing happens with purity. So obviously, like you get a zero if you fail prop 65 heavy metals limits. But if we find, you know, 20% of prop 65 limits in your products, that's going to be closer to an eight, for example. Okay, understood. And then another thing that you test for is nutritional value. And I was wondering on that, is that about like how appropriate those numbers are? You're talking about like recommended daily allowance and recommended daily intake. If you have something that says like, well, it's 500% of this RDA value, is that, does that count against somebody and count it as excessive? So in nutrition value, it's mostly about, yeah, daily values and macronutrient content. So one of the big things that we do, it doesn't affect every single category, but uh, fats, saturated fats, carbs, sugars are also going to negatively affect the, the nutritional value. Understood. Category number four, ingredient safety. What kind of things, you, you diluted to heavy metals already, what other kind of things can cause flags there? So we'll also look at artificial sweeteners and preservatives that are on safety lists. Uh, there are, again, that's very category dependent. So there's a lot of, in the protein category, there's a bunch of protein powders that have no artificial sweeteners or preservatives, but then there's a whole category of these kind of very heavily artificially sweetened products. And so those tend to be a little lower on our rankings in general. Uh, but it, it's definitely something that happens more on the complex products, like a protein powder or a pre-workout, and is less of an issue generally on something like a pill, where there's, I mean, there's only one gram of product, there's a lot less that can go wrong. Understood. And so when you've got a, like a, a protein powder that is um, flavored with some kind of artificial sweetener, uh, is it, uh, you mentioned that things are kind of relative. So would it be like there's a category of products and we all assume, okay, they've all got this. Now what is the, the content in it versus some that might not have any kind of artificial sweetener at all, which uh, in my experience, those are, those are harder to come by. Um, so exactly. is there kind of like a, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, a kind of like a handicap almost for certain categories of products? Yeah, what, what ends up happening is that certain categories have like lower total rankings. So like the top score in a vitamin D product might actually be like 99.2 out of 100. The top score on a protein powder might be like 91, right? So it's like harder. And like the worst score in a vitamin D might be like 91, but the worst score in like a protein powder might be like 50 or 60 or something, right? It's so like the ranges are a lot different. Um, it's part of the reason why we use the grades and the rankings separately. So like you can understand like, Hey, if I, I take the number 12 of vitamin D for example, but it's a 94 out of hundred, you probably feel safe, but you might not take the 14 best protein powder because that actually is causing you some risk down the line. That makes sense. And the, the fifth category that you, uh, that you rate on is projected efficacy. Now, what is that related to? Is that like related to manufactured manufacturer claims or more about, you know, the expectation of compound X in peer reviewed, uh, peer reviewed writing or something different or a combination of all of those? Yeah, it's the latter. So it's, it's really, we're looking at the active ingredient quantity and quality. So if, for example, in a magnesium product, right, there's a lot of different forms of magnesium that you could have. 
uh, something like magnesium citrate is going to be more bioavailable than a magnesium oxide, and we actually know the percent bioavailabilities. Uh, and so we can actually say, what's the, how many milligrams of magnesium do you have times the bioavailability of that magnesium equals like some expected absorbance? Uh, and we'll actually compare that. And so we'll compare that across all products in the category. And that's one of the big ways where, I mean, otherwise it's kind of hard to, in a magnesium category, for example, yeah, there's some purity issues and some products are just going to fail because they're impure. But now you're like, now it's just, it's just magnesium in a pill. How do you tell the difference? And there actually is a big difference, right? There's some types of magnesium that can be 20, 30% bioavailable and some that are 70, 80% bioavailable. And you might not know that looking at the label. And so that projected efficacy is about standardizing the products based on the active ingredients. Okay. And then uh, on the topic of manufacturer claims, so just, you know, making up a completely exaggerated example here, just to illustrate the point, if a company produces, let's say a thermogenic fat burner and on the label, they say this product also may cure your cancer. Clearly that is not going to happen. Would that be something that shows up in your testing as being like an exaggerated claim? Or is it just kind of like, well, clearly it's not going to, so we're going to ignore that and pretend that they're not, that's not even said. So we, we haven't gone so deep as to like look at the front of the label and see what kind of claims people have done. So some of those things, if someone makes like, let's say like someone, this actually happened to us, like someone was making a claim that uh, one of the supplements was made by a doctor and the doctor wasn't really a doctor, um, right? And those are the types of things that don't really factor into our rankings now, right? It's like it's, the company is lying in its marketing and we haven't quite figured out how to to evaluate that. Our testing is really based on what's inside the bottle, right? We're, we're taking a scientific approach to what's inside the bottle as much as possible. Uh, and that's really what the rankings are based on. We're working on ways to do that, working on ways to say, if someone is making some really exaggerated claims, we want to be able to factor that into the system somehow, but it'll probably be something more like a flag than a ranking uh, where we can actually say, hey, this product has been flagged by the FTC for false advertising, for example. Uh, and so we're, we haven't figured out exactly how to do that, but it's definitely something that we want to do in the future. So as of right now, safe to say Labdoor is a back of the label company. Yeah, I think that's really where we're back of the label and the inside of the bottle most specifically, right? Like what's inside the bottle <laughs> matters the most, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've got these five criteria. Now, give us the rundown, spare us any kind of multivariable calculus or anything, but how are those test results and those, and those criteria translated into a final score that we can see on the website? Yeah, there, so there's actually a ton of different calculations in each. So like, we'll, we have a, a whole kind of custom algorithm that's, that calculates each individual ranking, and then they get, they get organized together. Uh, and so it, it kind of generally has that logic of we'll check each individual for each individual category. We've built calculations like label accuracy, where you're penalized twice as much for going under as going over. Uh, and we've just kind of, we've carefully kind of built each of these categories and then they're able to kind of sum together to that one score. Uh, and we're, our job really, I think with that score is, is really that concept that I was talking about in the store is like when you're in that store and there's just so much data, you have no idea what to do. And what we're trying to do as much as possible is be, do that work for you ahead of time and do the work in a way that you would do it yourself if you could, right? So like the, the nutritional value is a classic example of that. Like if you actually go into a store and look at things, what people, if they ever actually pick up a nutrition label, 
they tend to look at the fats and the sugars, right? Because those are like the obvious things that they know are bad. And so that's one of the things that we factor into our ranking. Uh, and so I think those are the types of things that we try to figure out is how, if you were making this, this decision for yourself, like in projected efficacy, how would you make that decision? Well, you would want to get the, right, the, the most amount of the best form of that active ingredient. That's what you would go for. And so we just hope you find that. So it seems like this is something where you can take the results from your testing and basically plug those results into a spreadsheet and get a score. There isn't a lot of qualitative like, well, this maybe is a little high, so we'll adjust this here. It's all very much by the numbers that the process it, is. Exactly. And I think we I mean, take a lot of uh, – we look at places like Google and how important – how Google creates their rankings to decide who's, like, who's on the first page, who's number one. And that's a huge thing, right? Like being on the first page of Google versus the second page of Google is like, you know, it's like 95% or 90% of the clicks happen on that first page. Uh, and so figuring out that ranking is so important. There's like a ton of factors that go into that, right? All these different variables of what makes a good or a bad website. Uh, and we've really done that too. Is like, there has to be, like this cannot be an editorial process, right? This has to be a mathematical scientific process where uh, at the end, right, you plug all this data in and you have the rankings. Uh, and if you have the grades in the rankings, then I think it's one of the biggest things that we can always point to. You can argue with us, and, and people do this on Reddit or social media all the time, and say, hey, you know, I don't care about artificial sweeteners. I actually like artificial sweeteners, and you shouldn't penalize people for artificial sweeteners. And we say, fine, like, you might not agree with our rankings. You know, you can maybe add a few more points in your head to that because you don't care about that risk. But we're actually going to build the system based on kind of the global risk of everyone uh, and as much as possible, try to get the, the perfect global answer for this problem. And for, for those Reddit users, for example, who, who don't care about artificial sweeteners and, you know, I mean, nine times out of 10, I would put myself in a similar, similar category. It's the least of my concerns, realistically. So the scores are all presented on the website in such a way where you can see, you know, that would be something that goes against the ingredient safety score. So you can, with a little bit of extra digging, you can compare the scores in all five categories, apply a little less weight to that one in your head, and then make a decision based on that. Exactly. And I think that's something that we, we always, we actually talk about that just internally too, just this idea of there's some people who want like a five second decision, right? They just want to look at the rankings and they want to get out. There's some people who actually want like a one minute decision, right? They're going to actually go and they're going to read, they're going to look at the ingredient safety versus the projected efficacy. They're going to look at the bars and they're going to try to make a decision. And there's some people who want to take like 30 minutes to make a decision and they're going to read like, every full report, they're going to go in detail. We've had people who actually send us their own spreadsheets and say like, hey, I actually like recalculated the category based on my own cat characteristics and like, here's my spreadsheet. What do you think? Um, and so like, that's cool. Like if, if people want to do that, that's fine. Yeah, uh, watch out. You might be getting some spreadsheets from me in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I mean, that's fun, right? Like the people who care that deeply about it are the people who often end up being the the evangelizers, they be, end up being the people who say, hey, look, I did all this research, I figured it out, I tried to do it myself, and look, the, the system's actually pretty good. Um, maybe, maybe factor it one way or another based on your preferences, but that's about it. Um, and I think those are the types of things that we kind of figure out. And then what, the other thing we can do is if people are trying to hack our rankings, it also helps us as we learn from it. So one of the things that happened was, uh, someone came to us and said, basically, like, I changed your rankings. I just cut everything out that wasn't vegan. 
uh, and you only actually have like <laughs> seven vegan products on your protein products on your site. Um, and so for a while we said, we just like made a filter for vegan, right? And so you could just like click like vegan only and it would just like drop everything else out of the rankings. Uh, and we do the same thing for like sugar-free now. Actually, that was my, my dad told me, my dad's a diabetic and he asked me for that. Like, could I just see just the sugar-free protein powders, right? And so those are the types of things that as people are trying to use our rankings for different purposes, we can add these cool little tools to make it easier for them to make those decisions. Nice. And your underlying substructure is, is, will allow you to come up with more of those rules, more of those filters, and more of those options down the road as they present themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that's the idea of like, we've even, we've thought about ways to have being able to compare two products against each other side by side, things like that. So there's a bunch of, a bunch of ideas that we have, but I think it's between that, like adding new features, making it easier to use. And then the other way we grow is just testing more products. Yeah, and so you had mentioned that you're currently working on, I think you said, uh, nootropics and something else currently? Yeah, so we've, we're testing uh, three or four categories of nootropics right now. So we just tested Bacopa, we're testing theanine, alpha-GPC, we're going to be testing nootropic stacks. So that's kind of the next three or four categories uh, okay. that are kind of all related. And then the next really big request we're getting are kind of like life extension type products. So things that are, are making anti-aging claims. There's a, an Elysium product that uh, is getting more and more popular. There's a whole bunch of like NMN type supplements, Reservatrol-like supplements that people are claiming are actually going to make you live longer. Uh, and I think that's one of the big ones that we really want to jump on and test and prove because uh, our research and our, and our data into the peer-reviewed research on these ingredients can actually change the projected efficacy. So we actually have, for example, there's a category, Garcinia cambogia, that was on Dr. Oz a lot in the last couple of years, and people claim that it's this great thermogenic fat burner. But like the, the data actually showed, like if you looked at it, and you, uh, there were like rat studies where they just loaded up these rats with... Uh, with Garcinia Cambogia, and they lost like 2% over placebo in like a six month period, right? <laughs> and so we just said like, in that case, like the actual rankings for Garcinia say like, we, don't, we have not found like real evidence of efficacy in humans for this category. And then that category just all has lower scores because of that. Uh, and, so I think, and so I think some of those anti-aging categories could very easily fall in the same kind of category. Okay. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm inferring something here. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though the way you test things is you get a category of product and you do it in batches. And is that because of equipment calibration, higher efficiency in the lab, a combination of those, something else? It's both. So it's an efficiency in the lab for sure. Uh, but then uh, it's, I mean, fundamentally uh, the way people pick uh, on our site is by comparison. And so if you only have, you know, one Bacopa product, it's not as interesting as if you have 10. And so we yeah, try you have, to... You have one that scores as 80 and no other reference points around it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think we, at, at a minimum, we always do 10 in any new category when we can. Uh, and a lot of categories, we've done 20 to 50, even like protein has kept expanding. So we started at 50 protein products. We're like close to 100 now. So as people can just email us, uh, people can just send us a message, we're just at Labdoor on Facebook and Twitter. And so if you send us a message and ask us to test a product, we'll add it to our list. And as there's enough votes, 
we add more products to each category. Excellent. I have two more questions for you. I don't want to keep you all day. Um, this one, I, I don't mean to catch you cold on this, but I wanted to get your take on this if you have one. Some years back, uh, it was somewhere between, I think, like six and eight years ago, there was a controversy with USP Labs and two of their products that were spiked with DMAA. Are you familiar with that? I have seen that. Um, is that something, because that, that it was a, a kind of thing where there was a lot of controversy involved. There's been um, indictments drawn up against the executives in the company. Um, there's, you know, uh, filings that uh, that allege money laundering conspiracy involved all, the, in all involved in all of this. That it was intentional and deliberate. Um, but nobody knew about it until people in Hawaii started showing up with liver problems, and somebody actually died from this. No, my question is, if there is a product. Uh, or an ingredient in a product that is not supposed to be there, would your testing catch something like that? Hey, sorry, I lost you. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping I didn't stump you there. Um, my question, I'll rewind a little bit with the, um, the controversy with those products in DMAA is uh, nobody knew about it. Um, and the FDA was only alerted once uh, people in Hawaii started getting sick from this and having liver issues. One person ended up dying. Now, I, I can only imagine the difficulty in trying to identify a substance in a product that's not supposed to be there. Um, is that something that's even possible with the equipment that you have or in any kind of standard lab? It is possible if we have like us we don't have to know exactly which ingredient but we have to know what class of ingredients it's in uh, and so the specific test we can do for this purpose is that there's a there's a, a testing for sport so basically every ingredient that's on the the wada anti-doping list which is basically anything that if you were a collegiate professional or olympic athlete would cause you to fail a test uh, any kind of synthetic like a, amphetamine like dmaa yeah so there's actually just like a panel of like 200 plus ingredients that are all banned and there's a way there's like a machine there's like a way to just run and check all 200 to see if there's any of those ingredients uh and so that test is actually we did that on the pre-workout category so that was something that we did we specifically we don't do it on every category but we specifically picked the pre-workout category and we did that additional testing and a couple of products actually did fail that um and so some in some cases it's you know in some of these cases, the products were pulled, right? Like they're no longer sold. So I think the companies realized that they'd gotten caught. But I think in other cases, it's, it was companies claimed that it was contamination, that, you know, someone is manufacturing an illegal product in the same warehouse that they are. And a lot of these companies outsource their manufacturing, they outsource their packaging. Um, and so it's possible, it, it is possible that these companies don't even know that they're doing it. In some cases, it's possible that these companies don't know they're doing it, uh, but there definitely is this class of companies that know they're doing it, and we can catch them. We can do this test on products, and I think pre-workouts was the first place we did that. It's just it ends up being pretty kind of cost prohibitive unless we expect something to be spiked. I got you. It's not something that you're going to run just by default because of the cost of the test. Exactly. Um, and two follow-ups on that. So w if something fails the sport test on your page, then can we see why it failed? Um, what compound was present or just that it failed? Uh, it, it'll usually say in the full report why it failed. So you just go to the ingredient safety or the purity and it'll, you'll see why. Uh, in some of these cases, if the product gets discontinued, pulled off the market, uh, we'll sometimes remove the review. 
uh, if the product no longer exists. Uh, and we'll try to mark that as much as possible that you know, the product got discontinued, it got pulled off the market. And, and oftentimes also they don't get discontinued or pulled off, but they get reformulated or they can, uh, I mean, you also have reference in your testing online that I've seen about a, uh, a batch or a lot number of a, a specific sample that you tested as well. Yeah, that's the other thing is we'd, in a perfect world, we'd be testing every product, you know, every month, right? Uh, I think uh, good enough, I think for now is every year or every two years, uh, because it does give you a good sense of these products are not generally, if, if, company, if a company cheats once, they might try to cheat again. So you definitely want to be more careful there. Uh, but you can definitely see, hey, this is their record from 2017. This is a record from 2018. Uh, and we'll continue to test. I think we have to be on top of it. We have to continuously test and retest products. Final question for Neil Thanadar, CEO and founder of Labdoor. My big question for you is, how can us people, consumers, help you guys do your job better and be more successful? Oh, absolutely. I think tell, uh, tell your friends about Labdoor. Anyone who takes supplements should be checking Labdoor before they buy. Uh, and then, yeah, tell your trainers, tell your doctor. Uh, I think those are the, those are really the best ways that we get recommendations from people is their friends tell them, their trainer tells them, their doctor tells them. Uh, and so if you can spread the word about Labdoor, uh, would love to have you, love to talk. We're on, we're at Labdoor on Facebook and Twitter, on Reddit to ask us questions. Uh, we come in and we answer them, even if people are, have uh, want to challenge a specific product or don't agree with a specific review we want to hear from you so that's part of the process i think for what you're doing yeah absolutely it's the you're never going to make 100 percent of people happy but you can make the the testing and the rankings constantly better and i think that's what we always are about right if this is consistently getting better and better we have more products we have better features it'll be easier and easier to make a smart decision absolutely Neil, that was fantastic. I feel like I've actually learned something here, which is cool. Um, and uh, you did a good job of explaining it in such a way that uh, I can figure it out. And I'm a bodybuilder, so I'm kind of like, you know, at the low end of the totem pole as far as my, my uh, organic chemistry and laboratory knowledge goes. So I thank you for that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, lo I love talking about Labdoor and love talking about ways to make it better. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Maybe sometime down the road after we've had some more results come in, we'll get you back for a quick follow-up. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Neil. Have a great one. You too. Bye. Follow Darren on Instagram at Darren underscore star to see client profiles, updated workout plans, and tips and tricks on training and nutrition. Okay. That was a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed having Neil Thanadar on here uh, from Labdoor. It was great. I, I reached out to him and uh, just shortly after somebody introduced me to um, that organization, I reached out and I'm like, hey, uh, you want to come on do an interview? And he was very receptive, very accommodating, and it uh, didn't take long to put that together at all. So it was very good to have him here. Lots of good information. Um, I'm going to go ahead and send out a couple snippets of that via SoundCloud, something new that I'm trying here as well. So um, if you you are following me on Twitter, you'll be able to catch those clips in there also. So whenever there are excerpts from the show going forward, I will get those sent out via Twitter. May do a little bit of posting on Instagram of those as well. So I wanted to have another little short discussion here just with myself this time. Um, and the topic is how long should you prep for? 
And so this is kind of geared towards uh, competitors, contest prep, but specifically also if you're just looking to uh, achieve a certain goal by a certain date, how long should you give yourself? If you kind of take out some of the competition specifics that I'll be covering here shortly and kind of put it into a little bit more of a generic vocabulary, you can apply a lot of the same thing, um, a lot of the same concepts into that. So uh, I will divide it into two categories, a first-time competitor or dieter or goal seeker um, and somebody who's done this before. So um, if you've done it before, it's fairly simple, assuming you either have a good memory or you keep good records. And I would always encourage people to keep records because if you think you have a good memory, chances are it's probably not as good as you think it is. So uh, records, they matter a lot. So when I work with clients, we track our variables on a spreadsheet so I can see how um, your weight tracks over time, how your program adherence tracks over time. Um, and then we can look and see, hey, you know what? This point here is about when things started to hit the fan as far as like hitting a plateau and then we can say oh yeah actually that was when uh you know i put in an offer on a house and so my stress levels went through the roof okay cause and effect great or uh a story for me from last week oh that was when my ac went out so i couldn't sleep anymore i was getting like an hour and a half of sweat soaked sleep every night okay there we go you know we can kind of start to put things together just by looking at things that are laid out in a nice chronological format very organized so I'm all about variable tracking, and that way nobody has to rely on memory. Now, when you work with a whole bunch of clients also, I, I can't remember everything. Like somebody will ask me, uh, they'll send me an email or a text, and it's a very basic question about their meal plan. I'm like, uh, hold on a second. Let me pull it up because I have no idea what you're talking about just because there's so many little elements. Somebody says, hey, um, can I um, swap out this for uh, whatever in, in meal three? I'm like, well, probably, but... I'm not okay with just giving probably as an answer. So I've got to pull it up and look at it and see what it is. And then if you want to replace it, make sure that we get the amounts correct and all that stuff. So anyway, um, the whole point being, if you track those variables um, and you've gone through this process before, you can kind of average things out and say, okay, over the course of these four months, I lost 23 pounds, okay? And I was in... X condition before, I came in Y conditioning, I'm in Z conditioning now, and I want to hit, you know, B. <laughs> we'll just pay, make up another letter. So you can kind of see, this is where I started before, this is where I'm starting now, this is where I ended up before, this is where I want to end up now. So typically... It's very rare that you want to end up less conditioned than you did the first time. Typically, it's as conditioned or better. Um, and then usually, I mean, if you're going from show number one into show number two, it's pretty rare that you're going to start show number two, the, the prep process for that, in a state where you are less conditioned than you were at the start of prep number one. Um, just because I will use uh, I will use a client of mine, Nichelle, as an example here. So she's um, we're going to start her peak week this coming week. And I wasn't planning on calling her out here, but she's cool with it. So um, let's see. Just going over some numbers. And I posted this stuff on my Instagram. I posted her, uh, her progress pics from when she started, which was right around the start of the year up until now. And I mean, the, the change is just ridiculous. And she is just a beast and she absolutely kills it. And she is just a robot. Like I look at her, um, her tracker spreadsheet and it's just like, it is just week after week after week of everything going according to plan because she makes it happen that way. Um, so we're starting peak week on Sunday. 
We're sitting right now around 144. We started this process right around 172 or so. Now, we're getting relatively lean, but it's not a level of leanness that is going to be unsustainable for her. Like if we um, step on stage, figure probably around 142-ish, something like that, she might bump back up into like 148, 149 post-show, um, you know, maybe 10 days, two weeks post-show. That's going to be the target. You know, put a few pounds back on. And then, you know, we should be able to, get given her body composition, um, you know, get her calories back up, back down on her cardio a little bit, ease her into something that's a little bit more normal and sustainable, somewhere pretty close to that range. Like that, that's a level of conditioning that I think that she can sustain and hold without killing herself in order to do it. So then, you know, when you start about, when you, when you talk about starting a prep at 172, um, the first time and then starting a second prep at 150, well, okay, the game has changed completely. So, you know, we may say we may get her up on stage and she's at 142 and we're like, okay, that's good. But I think if we could, if we could hit like 138 next time around, that would really be the sweet spot. So we've got to tighten up a little bit more. Um, but uh, take a little bit of a break, give everybody a chance to uh, a chance to recover from it. But now we're looking at we have a target of around 138 starting at a point of about 150. So we're going to be looking to drop about 12 pounds over the course of prep. So once you kind of start to develop an idea of where you want that number to be um, for an experienced competitor, it becomes a lot easier because you can look at the rate at which she lost here. And I mean, she that, that number has been flying. I mean, she had weeks where she was dropping two, three, four, four and a half pounds over the course of a week. Um, that's not something that I would expect to happen if you're starting from a leaner point. So um, I wouldn't say, okay, well, clearly we're losing three pounds a week. We need to drop 12. So we only need a four week prep. No, that's ridiculous. Um, but I might say, hey, you know what? We could probably do this in eight or nine weeks. I think that'd be reasonable, um, starting from 150. So then it's not a 16 or an 18 week process, but you can do it in half that because you're coming in from a much more conditioned point. Now, that that's where it starts to get easier. You know, if you're if you've done this once before or multiple times before, you if you heard my interview with Shar uh, Legree that was posted earlier in the week, you know she's done 17 shows. She's got a pretty good idea of how her body responds to this and and how much time she needs and what's what it's going to take. Every prep is a little bit different, but the more shows you do, the more experience you get and the better uh, better of an idea you get of what the process is going to look like and how long it should take. Also, how long you're off between shows matters a lot. Like you know. Um, um, if Nichelle is going to do a show at the end of June, for example, okay, well, we're not going to take much of a break. We're going to take four more weeks and go into show number two. Um, or if you know you take a, a month or two off, um, or versus if you take a year or two off, you're going to be looking at very different scenarios for those. Uh, now. For the first-time competitor, this is different, and this is more difficult in a couple of different ways, specifically because you don't necessarily know what your target weight is going to be. You might have an idea, and I can tell you from experience that idea is probably wrong. Um, like, I might look at myself right now and say, well, I'm sitting at 220 right now, and I've got a little bit of fat to lose, but, you know, if I could get on stage around, you know, 202. 204, I think that'd probably be good. And I would do that and I would get up on stage and I'd be the fattest dude up there. Realistically, I would probably want to be closer to like 190 because then I'd be shredded. I'd feel small. I'd feel tiny. I'd be pissed that the number's that low because my ego would be taking a hit. But hey, you know what? Whatever. Whatever it takes to get to the aesthetic that you need to be competitive or to hit your target goal or whatever it happens to be. But for the first time, you just don't know. I mean, you've got no idea what that number is supposed to be. And the one thing that uh, 
there, there's an axiom that I remember reading um, somewhere on social media. I'm like, this dude's got a great point. And it was um, specifically for guys, but it was, um, you always have less muscle than you think, and you're always carrying more body fat than you think. <laughs> I'm like, that is very true. That is very true. Um, we always underestimate how much we've got to lose in order to get stage ready. I mean, you see these guys that, you know, especially in men's physique, it can be very deceptive because you've got some guys that have really, really great builds. You don't know how tall they are, and that makes a big difference. Somebody six foot versus five five, there's going to be a tremendous difference in weight between those. But you see a guy and you're like, man, that dude looks huge. Well, he's, uh, you know, uh, 158 pounds. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you, you can't really, you know, he looks like he's 200, but he's actually like 158. I mean, it's deceptive photography. It's, you know, somebody standing alone versus standing next to, you know, a, a bodybuilder as opposed to a physique competitor. There's a definitely a different aesthetic there. Um, you just don't know what that number is going to be. You, you don't know. So it's kind of a crapshoot. And that's why for a first prep, especially, I mean, I think there is tremendous value in working with somebody because I, I can look at somebody and say, okay, how tall are you? I can look at your body composition here. I can look at, you know, uh, how lean you are or aren't. And I can look at your overall level of development and I can get an idea within a handful of pounds of where we want you to come in. And then I can say, okay, we need more time. We need less time because a lot of people come to me and they're like, I want to do my first show. It's in eight weeks. And you look at them and they're like 18% body fat. Like, no, dude, that is a bad idea. And we've had this conversation before about, you know, what do you want to get out of it? So for some people that might be okay. It's like, Hey, I don't care if I get up there and don't even look competitive. I just want to do it to do one, go through the process, learn a little bit about it, and then take the next one a little bit more seriously. I'm like, all right, as long as you know what you're getting out of it, I'm okay with that. But um, you, you will typically need more time. So a standard default prep, like start to finish, and this comes from bodybuilding days, but I think it by default applies to, to all divisions to some extent. A default prep is typically 16 weeks. Um, depending on some variables, you may need more time or less time. If it's a first show, uh, I, it is rare that I would advocate less than 16 weeks. Unless you're walking around and you're like, you know, you're, you're looking cut, you've got veins, you've got visible abs without flexing, um, you've got really good development already. And I've worked with people like that. I, I, I had one guy that I worked with a couple years back and he sent me his picks and he's like, what do you think? Can I compete this year? And I'm like, dude, you could compete next weekend if you had to. I mean, you're just walking around like this. What the hell? And some people just don't know what they have. Um, but uh, it, that is a rarity to say the least. That is very uncommon. Typically, you're going to want more time, like 16 weeks minimum, to get ready for a first show. And that's once you're ready to start prep. I work with a lot of people that they just aren't ready for that because either, you know, if you've got 50 or more pounds to drop, a 16-week prep ain't going to cut it. Um, if you are on the underdeveloped side of the equation, like we need to spend some time building some muscle, that's pre-prep time. So actual contest prep is like, okay, this is when we're starting the cut that we are going to follow all the way through till show day. Um, that's what I'm talking about for how long should prep be. Because for a lot of people, you might consider prep as like, well, it's been about two years for me right now because I started out and I was 80 pounds overweight and now I'm getting close to my, well, I mean, yeah, the actual pre-contest phase. Because um, if you're doing it straight through for a couple years, it's going to be a, a rough haul um, to make it up to the stage if you don't give yourself a little bit of a metabolic break at some point during that stretch. You can't just diet endlessly. You've got to give your body a little bit of a chance. We've talked about that before to recover and to get over it. So, um 
what uh, the the kind of variables that that, are, that go into consideration there are how lean you are just on average, your body type, your genetic predisposition towards carrying fat, towards losing fat, um, you know how much muscle you're carrying on your frame. If somebody is really developed, um, you know, male or female, they just carry a good bit of muscle on their frame. That tells me that their body is going to be a little bit more resilient when it comes to prep, and it's going to be a little bit easier to push a little bit more aggressively. We want to retain as much of that muscle as possible. Clearly, that's always the name of the game. But um, somebody that doesn't carry a lot of muscle on their frame, they're just uh, maybe a little bit more on the ectomorph side where they're just kind of, you know, I hate to use this word, but just kind of skinny. You know, I mean, they, they, they have a small frame. They don't pack a lot of meat on their bones. Um, it's, it's difficult to lean someone like that out commonly. Um, but you, you do find some people who are just, you know, naturally small frame, don't carry a lot of muscle, but they can get shredded really easily. Not, not typical though. Um, usually the, the less muscle you carry on your frame, the more difficulty you're going to have leaning out in a substantial way, uh, at least as far as bodybuilding competitions are concerned and the level of conditioning that you need to get to be competitive on stage in most divisions. So um, all of this, in summary, comes to uh, the conclusion of, of course, my favorite answer for every question. Say it with me now on three. One, two, three. It depends. How long do I need to prep? It depends. Um, if you've done it before, you've got some data to look back on, hopefully, where you can make a more informed decision. If, you, if it's your first time, uh, enlist the opinion of someone who knows. Um, and get an idea. And, you know, if anybody emails me, the first thing that I'm always going to do is say, let's look at some photos, you know, before we sign up and do anything, before you commit to having me as your coach, send me some photos. Let's look at this. Let me give you an idea of what it's going to take. And I may say, you know, you need, you know, probably about 20 weeks. All right, cool. Let's get to it. I may say, you need a year. Um, to, to focus on X, Y, or Z. Either we need to bring up development, we need to get your conditioning just a little bit more um, to the point where you're ready to start prep from. And then at that point, it's like, you know, do you want help with that process? Are you, are you good on your own? And I'll give people some guidance. Like, what are you doing right now? What does your diet look like? What does your training look like? Okay, change this, focus more on this. If you can do that, great. You're going to be in a good spot. If you're happy with the progress that you're getting, keep on trucking. If you feel like things are stalling a little bit, get in touch with me. We can start things early and see how um, see how we can put together a plan to get you ready for prep, and then we'll know how long we're uh, we're looking at at that point. So hopefully that helps a little bit. If you're looking to to compete, and like I said, you can translate a lot of this into non-competitive language as well. If you're just trying to hit a non-competitive goal, a photo shoot, vacation, something like that. Always give yourself more time than you think that you need um, because you're always carrying a little bit more body fat than you want. It also depends on what that goal is. You know, if you're going on vacation, you don't need to be four percent body fat to to go out on the beach and not make a fool out of yourself. It's ridiculous. So certainly there's going to be slightly different standards depending on what the goal is. But hopefully that helps get you uh, pointed in the right direction, at least uh, at least to some extent. Time to wrap it up. Closing thoughts. Okay, I'll, I'll do everyone a favor here and uh, make this relatively brief. So I'm recording this on Friday, should get this up today. It's the 18th. Last night was um, our gig that we've been working on and, and waiting for for a while. So uh, this was just our trio, me, my wife, our good friend, me on keys, both of them singing. Um, it, was, uh, it was a good time. I mean, this was our first time playing at this venue. It's uh, the Troubadour Roadhouse and Performance Hall, which we talked with the owner and he really 
made the pitch that, you know, this is a listening room. You know, the music here is first. The drinks and the food, it's all secondary. Um, we went the previous night to scope it out, and my former piano teacher, uh, he was, I worked with him for about two months, um, was playing there. Shout out to Ben Maney. Um, he was fantastic. He was just playing solo. Um, we were there. He had a, a good-sized crowd there. There was also, um, we heard from the owner, uh, and I, I saw them, they were behind us. It was this big group of tables that had that'd been put together. It was about 15 people or so. He said it was a singles group, um, and they'd come there just to, you know, do whatever it is singles groups do, um, not for the music or anything like that. And one of them, like the, the, the person that was leading the group, actually went and asked somebody on staff, you know, we're having to yell over the music. Um, can, you, uh, can, can you have the guy turn down or take a break or something like that? And they said... No, <laughs> he, he has priority here. Your conversation does not. This is, this is a place where you go to listen to music. So it was our first time playing at a venue like that, which was cool just because people are paying attention to you. They're focusing on you and they have an appreciation. You're not, not just background noise at that point, which is kind of cool. So there was one song we did where uh, it, it's something that just my wife sings on and I'm playing on it. So it's, it's not so much a trio it's just a duo for that one song. And, uh, Full disclosure, I screwed the pooch. I got separated from her, and it was it was ugly for a minute. I don't know if how obvious it was, but for me, you know, I mean, I when I'm playing there, I mean, you're under some lights. I I just sweat. I mean, you know, I could have uh, I I could have taken my shirt off and just ringed it out and just had sweat falling everywhere. Um, it, it's it's hard. It's stressful, and I could tell like as soon as that happened, and I think like. I held out a, a transition too long and I think she came in at the right spot, but I was still in the old spot and it's happened before. So I was kind of on alert that like, Oh shit, something might go wrong here, which is the wrong way to approach it. Instead, what you should do is just keep cool and be like, okay, this might happen. And if it does, I know what to do. I know what the next chord is. You know, I'm not playing off sheet music. I'm just playing off chord changes. Like I know what it is. I got that. That is not how I responded. Totally foobarred it. We got off completely. Took us about 10 seconds to get back. I mean, nothing stopped or anything like that, but it was just one of those situations where I wanted to kind of melt into the floor and just disappear and just look like a puddle of my own sweat. Um, and thankfully, that was about two-thirds of the way through. We, we recovered after that. Everything was fine. Everything before that was great. It, it's sad, though, because that's like the one thing that I take from it. Like, okay, that's what I remember about that gig, but there was a lot of stuff that went over really well. The cool thing is because people are listening – you know, it's not a super loud environment. And so we have some things like, you know, we do Dream On by Aerosmith. And we do it a little bit low key, but towards the end, we freaking bring it. I mean, you know, we are, we, I'm, I'm pounding on those keys. Both of them are just belting and wailing and we are bringing it home. But a lot of stuff we do, like we cover um, Wicked Game by Chris Isaac and we really bring it down and in a louder venue, it doesn't work. But when we did it there and it's just a really low dynamic and it, it can be really nuanced and that actually came through and everybody was able to hear that. Um, it was really cool. It was a really cool experience. I really appreciate our friends that were able to make it out. Um, Carol, Terry and Carolyn, thank you guys for coming. Really appreciate that. So um, we'll be back there in June. Anyway, I just wanted to offer that as my closing thought for the week. Just a little bit of a wrap up for me since we didn't do anything earlier. We just jumped straight into it with Neil. So We'll be back next week. Um, I have more guests lined up. I'm working on more as well, so expect more of that in the future. But we will have segments um, like what we've grown accustomed to, which is me babbling into a microphone about who the hell knows what. So um, 
I, I welcome any thoughts, suggestions. If anybody has anybody, they're like, "Hey, can you get so and so on?" I mean, I don't know. I will. I will talk to my to my to my uh, booking specialist. And uh, and we'll find out. We'll make an attempt at least. So um, if you've got any ideas along those lines, certainly shoot them over. Um, so I'm all over the place on social media now, um, and by all over the place, I mean I'm I'm getting more active and um, in I'm in more spots now. So it's all, it's still Darren underscore Star on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube um, are all five star physique. Twitter is at Darren Star. I have SoundCloud now, but you don't need to worry about that. Basically, what I'm going to do is take excerpts of this show, um, just like one-minute little clips, and SoundCloud those, but I'll post those through my Twitter feed. So um, I'm, I'm going to plan on working a little bit more personal stuff in on Twitter as well. So if any of that kind of stuff interests you, you can find me there. So um, that's all I've got. So peace out until next week. Hope everybody has a great weekend. It's going to be sunny here. I've got some work to do, some planning to do, some projects kicking up for summer. So um, we will see how that goes. Have a great weekend, everyone.